I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. It just has to be the case that we're a little confusing sometimes because we're always talking about complicated things. Yeah, we're confusing sometimes. And because of that, we love, love, love to take questions from our listeners at the magic number 731-388-9334, which gives us an opportunity to clarify our talking and our thinking. Uh, And with that, we're now going to answer one of our listeners' questions. Okay. Hello, this is Brad Mossing in Toledo, Ohio. I'm calling to see what your thoughts are on our Congress's self-interest, since the vast majority of them are classified as wealthy. Um, how do they balance their self-interest with the public good? Thank you. Doing a great job. Hey, Brad from Toledo. That's a really interesting question about uh, Congress's self-interest relative to economic policy. I think it's an important question. You know, our research shows that, what is it, Goldie, about 35% of all members of Congress. Right. uh, House and Senate, about 35% are millionaires. They they have wealth of over a million dollars a year. That they report. That they report (laughs) compared to less than 6% of the general population. Oh, interesting. So six times as many people in Congress are millionaires as the general population. So I... Tell you something interesting. It tells about you that. that our representatives are not very representative. representative. <laughs> and, you know, it is just unambiguously true that over the last 40 years, Congress has refused to act in the economic interests of the middle class. And how much of that is uh, out of self-interest? You know, you can't say whether it's, you know, naked self-interest or just simply a total disconnect from the reality that faces most Americans. And I can tell you, in your circles and even in my modest circles, right. we are disconnected. Yes. We, we, don't, we don't know how the, uh, the median American family is getting by. Right. And, you know, like when the Obama administration in their first two years had super majoritarian yeah. control of both the House and the Senate. Right? Yeah, close to it. Well, they did for a little well, while, they had, right? They, yeah. they, had majo- the two years. they had majorities in both houses. And they had 60. They could have chosen to raise the minimum wage, right. but they, they didn't. They could have chosen to raise the overtime threshold. But they didn't. They didn't. They could have chosen They could have chosen to do a lot of things, and they didn't because, eh, 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 you know, it's you how know. They're, they're disconnected <laughs> yeah. from the American public. Yeah. So I yeah. think, again, you, you say self-interest. Um, uh, yeah, I'm sure there are some people that do it out of self-interest. <laughs> Trump. Um <laughs> Mostly disinterest. Disinterest. <laughs> Not so much uh, self-interest. Right. There's there's <laughs> clearly politicians who act out of naked self-interest, uh, out of animosity to no. working people. But for the most part, what you do know is that, you know, there's this huge disconnect between uh, the elite that represents us and the people they're supposed, they're elected to represent. Yep. And that's probably it. But, you know, again, part of the reason we do the podcast is to get people to understand these issues more clearly and to make more specific demands of the people who represent them. Because, you know, another part of the problem is, 
you know, you live in a democracy, you elected these people, we collectively elected these people, and we have not collectively held them to account in the way that we should. And, you know, I guarantee you that not enough Americans are calling their elected representatives and demanding the economic policies that are required to get the country back on track. And that is as big a problem as the people who are in Congress themselves. Of course, uh, uh, one solution might be to elect a more representative Congress. And I think one way you might do that is through uh, public financing of congressional campaigns. Right. We are experimenting with that in city council elections here in Seattle, and we're getting a much more diverse uh, crop of candidates running. So that might be something to play with at the national level, though, you know, as as we've seen in the legislature, uh, even ordinary people, your common man, your average median household income representing a state legislator is often captured by business interests. So there's no guarantee that you'd get a better government that way. Hi, Nick. This is Heidi from Denver, Colorado. Uh, I listen pretty regularly and had a question about your uh, September 3rd episode around the raise minimum wage, not killing jobs. Um, I find Ben Zipperer's research very compelling. However, I was wondering if there was academic research done around the argument that if the minimum wage were raised, that prices and costs would go up with, with it, thus negating its effects. So I'd love to be able to debunk this myth. Thanks so much. Love the show. Okay, so Heidi from Denver, thank you for your question about the minimum wage. And indeed, um, the employment effects uh, across a ton of studies, not just Ben's, but our Dubay's and a hundred others have shown that basically there are no instances where raising the minimum wage creates any negative effect on jobs. But the question of what happens to prices uh, is another really good one. Now, I just want to frame it up by reminding people that when wages go up, the wages turn out to be almost always a de minimis part of the costs of whatever it is that you're talking about. As I recall, for instance, out of a dollar that you pay Walmart, wages comprise only about 10% of that price. And if 20% of their workers get a 30% raise, that that turns out to be a very, very small- Pennies on the dollar. Pennies on the dollar. And of course, if you're one of those workers whose wages went up by a third, it's a great trade. But there but, is but it's increasing so, evidence. Yeah, yes. it so happens, Heidi, that I have right here in my hand an actual study on this very issue. And in fact, this is from the University of Washington's minimum wage study team. This is the same team that produced a study a couple years ago that suggested there might be a negative disemployment effect. And that's the one that all the critics of minimum wage cite and then followed a couple years ago saying, yeah, probably wasn't a disemployment effect. But they have been studying, this is called the impact of city-level minimum wage policy on supermarket food prices. And I will read to you from their abstract. Results, there were no overall market basket price changes attributable to Seattle's minimum wage policy. Moreover, no minimum wage effect was detected by USDA food group, food processing, or nutrient density categories. And then they conclude local area supermarket food prices were not impacted by Seattle's minimum wage policy two years into policy implementation and after the first increase to $15 an hour overall. 
all, finally, low-income workers may be able to afford higher-quality diets if wages increase, yet supermarket prices stay the same. Yes. That seems like a win-win-win, right? It, it absolutely does, except... That uh, you know, just no, no except don't don't qualify. Point out one last thing because uh, it's a really important question. It is obviously mathematically unambiguously true that if you increase wages um, for lots and lots of people, prices to make stuff will go up. Mm. But with this, but with this caveat, oh, I'm sorry, I, I take it back. The costs to make things uh, will go, will not necessarily. go up. It increases is, productivity, it reduces does, turnover, it does, blah, reduces blah, blah, absenteeism, blah, blah. lowers your job training But costs. here's the thing. Here's the point I want to make is that over the last 40 years, profits have effectively doubled as a percent right. of GDP. So one of the ways that you can drive wages up but not prices is by collapsing the amount of profit that companies take on each transaction back to normalized levels. And for perspective, American corporations are, are earning today approximately a trillion dollars more than they used to, and that came directly out of wages. Right, right, right. right. So, so by rights, American workers should be able to raise their wages about a trillion dollars American companies may have to lower their profits by about a trillion dollars, but American consumers would pay exactly the same amount. Okay, and so, the world would be a better place, so, but rich so, people would be less rich. So, shorter, Nick, even if raising the minimum wage increase costs, that doesn't necessarily mean it will increase prices, prices. to consumers. Correct. Because there's plenty of margin left Correct. to reduce corporate profits. Despite what the fr and, your friends at the Chamber of Commerce may and say. And shorter <laughs> UW study, no, the minimum wage should not increase prices at local supermarkets. There you have it. <laughs> hey, Nick and Goldie. Your last answer to a question about growth and capitalism was pretty unsatisfying. It totally failed to address the fact that every quarter, Every CEO of every public company has to stand in a room full of shareholders and board members and show a picture that indicates positive growth in real dollars, at least if they want to keep their job. The CEO of Verizon can't say, look, everybody has switched from our landlines to Skype to make phone calls. Isn't it great? What do you say to that? Thanks. So I think that when, when people talk about economics and markets, there's often this a disconnect between the market as a whole and the individuals and firms that are competing against each other uh, within the market. Just because something might be good for the market does not mean it's good for an individual firm. And obviously, when we talked about growth earlier, Nick, we were saying that in our modern technological economy, our knowledge-based economy, we can dematerialize a lot of growth so that you can continue to have economic growth uh, you can, you can without continue destroying to have the economic progress. Well, right. economic yeah. progress, economic growth without continuing exponentially to consume resources. Right. That the resource we're consuming is knowledge and know-how, uh, not necessarily fossil fuels, land, yeah. minerals, uh, natural materials, etc. Um, and there will be winners and losers yeah, of that. And, but to, and to Mark's point, the people who lead firms will be under pressure... Uh, from the market and their shareholders to both provide better and better quality products to their customers and reasonable return to the shareholders. And that right. 
you know, in a market-based system, that won't go away, but we can certainly rearrange the system in a way which makes the outcome of that competition both consistent with increasing the welfare of workers and increasing the welfare of the planet, ideally. Right. And, 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 and let's yeah. be clear, you used the example of Verizon, Mark. And uh, for those who don't know, Verizon was one of the baby bells. After yeah. AT&T was broken up, it was the regional bell operating company uh, in Pennsylvania and the Mid-Atlantic. And its business was primarily landlines, local landlines. Well, what is Verizon now? Verizon is a cell phone company and a cable, TV, and broadband company. Yeah. It's not landlines that feed right. its profits anymore. It's cell phones and broadband. Yeah. So Verizon adapted to the changing technologies and the changing market, and it's done great. So it has shown those growth, even as Skype took away the long-distance service, even as the cell phone industry took away the landline business, Verizon innovated, adapted, and grew. So there are opportunities even for companies who are seeing their monopolies uh, being destroyed. Yep. If you have a question for Nick on any economic issue, please give us a call and leave us a message at 731-388-9334. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.